From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, treating CRVO. I think at this point, we're almost now spoiled by having too many choices. First this. This year's ASCRS annual symposium was great. I learned a lot that I'm applying to my practice right now. If I have any complaint, it's that I couldn't get to all the sessions I wanted to because some of them overlapped. That's why I'm so excited about the new ASCRS Media Center. More than 1,300 sessions from that meeting are now available through this great new resource. See what you missed or revisit the most interesting sessions. The Media Center is free to all meeting attendees. Stay tuned after the podcast for more information. Having different therapeutic options is generally a good thing. In glaucoma, topical medications abound, and we tailor therapy to the needs of a particular patient, the efficacy of the drug, and the side effects of therapy. But imagine this situation. What if we had no glaucoma medications, and then suddenly, without comparative data, a number of different glaucoma medications from different drug families were FDA-approved? Okay, we'd be happy to have the options, but how would we know which to choose and for which patients? This is the position in which our retina colleagues find themselves when treating CRVO. Paul Hahn attempts to help us navigate this embarrassment of riches. Before we discuss the use of anti-VEGF agents in the context of central vein occlusion, can I get you to briefly outline the recommendations of the CVOS? Yeah, absolutely. So the CVOS is always a good place to start when we're talking about treatment recommendations for CRVO. And these days, fewer and fewer people are quoting a CVS or even are as familiar with the CVS as they probably should be because of the advent of, of newer therapies, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But the CVOS really set the standard of care for over 15 years since the results were first published in 1995. So the CVOS was a comprehensive study looking at all aspects of CRVO, including treatment for both primary complications of CRVO. And when we talk about those complications, we're primarily referring to macular edema and neovascularization. So the CVOS was a multi-standard prospective randomized controlled clinical trial uh, between 1988 and 1992. And kind of the punchline is that there are two recommendations that arose. One, looking at the use of grid pattern argon laser photocoagulation for treatment of CRVO-associated macular edema, and the other one on the use of PRP, or panretinal laser photocoagulation, for treatment of neovascularization. So the CVOS Group M report looked at grid pattern argon laser in patients with perfused CRVO-associated macular edema and visual acuity of 2050 or worse. And in this study, grid pattern laser photocoagulation did not demonstrate a significant improvement in visual acuity. Now, one of the interesting things is that treatment actually did result in decreased macular edema as detected by fluorescein angiography. Of course, this was before the availability of OCT. Um, But despite this increase or this improvement in anatomy, because vision did not improve, CVOS concluded that grid pattern laser photocoagulation in eyes with CRVO-associated macular edema was not visually beneficial. And until recently, with the development of intravitreal agents, standard of care for macular edema 
was set by CVOS as observation. Now, CVOS also looked at uh, neovascularization, which is um, kind of the other complication of CRVO, and CVOS also set the standard of care for treatment of NV. So in the group N report, CVOS studied whether prophylactic PRP, which means at the time of diagnosis of CRVO, and that is before neovascularization presumably occurs, or PRP at the time of identification of NV was, was better. And the analysis is kind of complex, kind of convoluted, but the end result was that CVOS recommended prompt but not prophylactic PRP at the time of identification of neovascularization. So in other words, not when the patient is first diagnosed with CRVO, but after the patient has had CRVO and neovascularization is identified. And that's remained a standard of care even despite the onset of these newer therapies. So in summary, the CVOS, which has really been the gospel of treatment for CRVO for almost 15 years, told us to observe macular edema and to treat neovascularization at the time of detection of NV and not at the time of CRVO diagnosis. Paul, let's talk about some newer studies. What, what is the, the Geneva study, the SCORE study, and the CRUISE study? Good question. So we talked about the CVOS study at setting the standard of care for 15 years or so, and those studies were really the pivotal studies that started to shift that standard of care. Uh, the SCORE study was the first of these studies. It was published in 2009, and it compared efficacy and safety of triamcinolone versus standard of care for RVO-related macular edema. So there were two arms, the CRVO arm and the BRVO arm, and I'll talk about the CRVO arm. So as we just talked about, standard of care for macular edema from CRVO was observation. So the SCORE study compared intravitreal triamcinolone to observation. Now, one important thing about the study is that the triamcinolone that was injected is not the Kenalog that we all inject or recently Triessence, which is a preservative-free uh, steroid formulation um, uh, that is a little bit newer. This was an off-label uh, injection of one milligrams or four milligrams of preservative-free triamcinolone. So it's not something that we can directly get currently. Uh, but in this study, eyes were uh, studied over a 12-month period, and they were injected every four months during this period and um, uh, studied for visual and anatomic improvements. And um, again, the punchline of this is that all uh, the patients in the CRVO arm did demonstrate visual improvements as well as anatomic improvements compared to observation. Uh, the study also, of course, looked at side effects, and as expected with injection of a steroid, side effects were noted, particularly cataract and increased intraocular pressure. So that was a SCORE study. Now, shortly after came the first, uh, came the Geneva study, which prompted the first FDA approval for uh, treatment for CRVO, and that was Ozerdex, or which uh, Ozerdex is a uh, sustained, uh, I'm sorry, is an implantable sustained release dexamethasone implant. So this was approved in 2009 based on results of this Geneva study, which was a six-month study, uh, an international multi-centered, randomized, controlled clinical trial. And in the study, they looked at two different uh, concentrations of Ozerdex to inject, and they compared these injections to sham injection for treatment of macular edema in eyes with RVO. Now, importantly, the primary outcomes in the Geneva study were reported for all RVO eyes grouped together, so they did not distinguish in their primary analysis between CRVO 
and BRVO. Um, but when looking at this primary data, the Osrodex implant did result in uh, improvements in visual acuity and uh, improvements in anatomy uh, through their endpoints. In their sub, uh, I'm sorry, in their post-hoc analysis, they actually uh, did divide patients by by type of RVO. In other words, looking at patients with BRVO and CRVO, and they did identify significant visual improvement gains and anatomic gains in patients injected with 0.7 milligrams of Osrodex, which has become the FDA-labeled uh, dose. Uh, these improvements were noted, importantly, at 60 days or two months, but not at the three-month or six-month time period, suggesting that the peak time of efficacy for Osrodex is around the 60-day point. And of course, Osrodex being a steroid, primary adverse effects included cataracts and incre increased intraocular pressure. Now, also around the same time, but actually shortly after, results from the CRUISE trial were released. The CRUISE trial was another masked, multi-centered, randomized, controlled, phase three clinical trial that compared intravitreal anti-VEGF therapy using ranibizumab or Lucentis to, uh, to control or sham. And this was for, of course, CRVO-associated macular edema. So in this study, eyes were treated with two different dosages of Lucentis or with sham on a monthly basis over a period of six months. And the primary endpoint was at the six-month period. And um, similar to the other studies, the CRUISE trial demonstrated visual acuity benefits as well as anatomic benefits in the Lucentis or Ranibizumab-treated uh, eyes. Uh, side effects were relatively minimal, as we know from our experiences with these anti-VEGF agents. So there were very few uh, ocular adverse effects and very few systemic adverse events. There was, a, I think, a, a single case of a transient ischemic attack Another case of myocardial infarction, uh, but these were felt to be secondary to perhaps the patient's underlying systemic conditions and cannot be definitively attributed to any of these agents. So around 2009, these three studies, the SCORE study, the Geneva study, and uh, the CRUISE study uh, were released and really changed the way we think about CRVO because prior to these studies, as we talked about before, CVOS identified observation as standard of care but after these studies, we identified good treatments for CRVO-associated macular edema, essentially for the first time. We're going to contrast some, some of these studies with the new study, the Copernicus trial. Can I get you to describe what the trial was and, and, and what its findings are? Sure. So the Copernicus trial was a very similar trial to the others. And what Copernicus looked at was the newest member to the anti-VEGF family, and that is Eflibercept, or ILEA, originally called VEGF-TRAP-I. So in the Copernicus trial, patients with CRVO-associated macular edema were randomized to receive uh, a flirtorecept or sham on a monthly basis over six months, very similar to the design of the CRUISE trial. And similar to the results, again, of these other trials, the Copernicus trial demonstrated visual acuity improvements as well as anatomic improvements over six months. Uh, similarly, uh, adverse events, both systemic and intraocular, were rare and were balanced between both the sham and the treatment groups, suggesting, again, that these uh, injections are very safe. So the Copernicus trial was one more agent that was added to our armamentarium that, again, really changed the way we think about CRVO, adding new treatment options, whereas before we didn't have any. 
you discuss in your editorial the, 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 the difficulty of comparing different studies because of a lack of uniformity in the primary endpoints of the studies. Can I get you to sort of flesh that out for me? Of course. So when we look at these studies, uh, we can identify each agent as being better than sham. But it's difficult for us to figure out which of these agents is best. And part of the reason is because we, we have a very difficult time comparing these studies. Now, we all know that you, it's, it, with, with individual studies that aren't um, controlled to each other, you can't just compare studies. But what makes this even more difficult is, as you refer to, the lack of uniformity between these studies. And these, are, these studies are not uniform in several ways. So importantly, their primary endpoints are very different. So for example, in the CRUISE trial, the primary endpoint was the mean change in best corrected visual acuity at six months. So the number of letters that the patient improved or didn't improve. In the Geneva trial, the primary endpoint was a little bit unusual, and that was time taken to achieve a 15-letter or more improvement. So the time that it took to improve three lines of vision. In the SCORE trial, the primary endpoint was the proportion of subjects who gained a three-line improvement, and this was at one year because that was their, their duration. And in the recent Copernicus trial, the endpoint was very similar to the SCORE trial. It was proportion of subjects with three-line improvement but at six months, which was their time period. So their primary endpoints are very different, and it's difficult to compare uh, what one drug does compared to another because of that. Their secondary endpoints are often very similar, though. And, for example, each of these studies does look at uh, best corrected, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, a percent of patients who do get 15, line, uh, 15 letters or more at the end of their study period. And if we look at these, then we might think that we can compare which drug is better by which drug has a higher percentage of patients with better visual acuity at the end of their study period. But the problem with that type of analysis is that their inclusion and exclusion criteria are also different. So uh, it gets a little bit complex, but each of the uh, patients that they studied was, were, were slightly different in each of these patients. For example, in the Cruz patient, one of their um, exclusion criteria was a afferent pupillary defect, or, or technically a brisk afferent pupillary defect, suggesting that they are excluding patients who might have ischemic or non-perfused CRVO, which often has uh, brisk afferent pupillary defect associated with that. So in the CRUISE study, they may be excluding patients who may not do well, and for that reason, their, their results may appear to be more favorable than others. Similarly, in the Geneva study, they excluded any patient who, in the opinion of the investigator, would not demonstrate a 15-line, uh, sorry, a 15-letter improvement in visual acuity. So again, these, a lot of these studies exclude patients who they think will not do well. And this is for the reason of demonstrating visual acuity benefits and for gaining approval, uh, FDA approval and so forth, but it does make comparison of these studies difficult because their inclusion and exclusion criteria are not the same. And of course, even if they were the same and even if their primary endpoints are the same, we can't compare studies, but it would give us a little bit of a, uh, a better indication as to how these drugs fare compared to each other. In a sense, it, it's, it's, it's great having no therapeutic choices uh, as, as things had been in the past with, um, with, the, with the CVS. It's great having one therapeutic choice. But it, it, it's, a, it's a mess having all of these different therapeutic choices now. 
How, how do you choose, in, in the context of your own practice, what, what you're going to do for these patients? Yeah, and that's, a, and that's a great point. And, you know, you're exactly right. I think at this point we're almost now spoiled by having too many choices. And in the recent editorial that uh, we referred to earlier, published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in March of 2013, this is an editorial that I published with Dr. Sharon Fekret, uh, who is also at Duke and is the director of our Duke University Retinal Vein Occlusion Center of Excellence. Uh, we, we addressed some of these issues. So in, in that editorial, we really tried to address why it's such a difficult question to answer. In other words, why we have a hard time of choosing which therapy to use. So uh, when, currently when we discuss treating CRVO, we typically refer to treatment of CRVO-associated macular edema because that's the complication of CRVO for which we have a lot of treatment options. And as we discussed before, treatment of neovascularization secondary to CRVO still remains uh, PRP, and that's the, that's the gold standard. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, over the past five years or so, we've moved to having no therapy for CRVO-associated macular edema, which made it easy. Uh, we saw patients with CRVO, we kind of shrugged our shoulders and told them that there, that there was nothing that we could do. But quickly, we moved to having multiple therapies, including three different anti-VEGF agents, two different steroid formulations, and perhaps others. So I'll start by telling you what I do. And what I do if I see a patient with CRVO and they have macular edema is I'll treat almost all of these patients first line with anti-VEGF agents. My anti-VEGF agent of choice is bevacizumab or Avastin, at least first line, and then I'll switch to other agents if, um, if I don't see improvements. And I generally reserve use of steroids for refractory cases, patients who don't respond to anti-VEGF agents, and preferably patients without cataract, either removed or um, aphakic, et cetera, without glaucoma or without a history of steroid response. And I do this because of the risk-benefit profile. So in these studies, uh, we know that, anti, uh, that, that steroids have increased rates of cataract and increased rates of uh, in increased intraocular pressure. And the treatments with anti-VEGF seem to be safer. And because of that, I generally choose to use anti-VEGF agents first. Now, importantly, as we discussed earlier, there are no published results from large randomized head-to-head -head studies that compare any of these agents for treatment of RVO or CRVO associated macular edema. So nobody knows which of these agents is best. But because of the different risk-benefit profile, I think most practitioners, for that reason, will choose anti-VEGF agents as first, off, first line. So there has been a, a study called the CAT study, the Comparison of Age-Related Macular Degeneration Treatments Trial, which compared ranibizumab or Lucentis to bevacizumab or Avastin, but that was for the treatment of neovascular AMD. But we don't have one of these for RVO or really for any other retinal diseases, and therefore, we don't know which agent is best. And as we talked about earlier, we can't compare the studies because of differences in primary outcomes, in recruited patient populations, and because there are different studies. So for anti-VEGF, do we use Avastin? Do we use Lucentis? Do we, do we use ILEA? Really, no one knows. And in the editorial, um, I suggest that the choice of drug is driven not by evidence-based medicine, despite our... Um, 
our drive and our goal to treat, to treat patients with evidence-based medicine. But instead, I think that the way we choose our drugs, especially in a situation like this, is driven more by political socio, uh, uh, socioeconomic beliefs, uh, availability of the drug, or the way we were trained. And for that reason, I think it's important that in the future, we standardize trials, or even better, um, uh, have head-to-head comparisons so we can really figure out which of these agents is optimal. Otherwise, the way I treat these patients or the way someone else treats patients is, um, is just essentially guessing, and there's no way to know which uh, way to treat these patients is better. Until we do this, yeah, so until we do this, we'll never really be able to take advantage of all of our available treatment options. And if we get another anti-VEGF agent or another steroid or another other type of agent to treat these patients, it may just be another way that we're spoiled by too many choices. Paul, thank you very much. No, thank you. Paul Hahn is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology in Vitreoretinal Surgery and Diseases at the Duke Eye Center in Durham, North Carolina. His paper, A Flebrecept for Central Retinal Vein Occlusion, An Ongoing Revolution or Are We Just Spinning in Place, appears in the March 2013 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Here's some additional information about the new ASCRS Media Center. Almost all of the 2012 ASCRS ASOA meeting was audio and video recorded, and there are now more than 1,300 sessions featuring almost 1,000 speakers available online. You can view the general sessions, ASCRS paper sessions, symposia, films and posters, plus select courses and ASOA sessions on business management. It's essentially the entire meeting, anytime you want, and it's all available through the new ASCRS Media Center. If you attended the meeting, your Media Center access is free. If you're a current ASCRS or ASOA member but didn't attend, you can still see everything that you missed for the member price of $199. If you're not an ASCRS member, you can still purchase the Media Center, or better yet, join us and get the lower member price. To view the 2012 meeting through the Media Center, visit the ASCRS website at www.ascrs.org. If you're already a member, log in first and then click the Media Center link. If you're a guest, just click the Media Center link at the top of the page. From there, you can purchase the Chicago 2012 package or, better yet, join the ASCRS and receive the discounted member price. Ask questions of Dr. Han or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.